Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And earlier today, the New York Times and the Washington Post reporting on former National Security Advisor to the Trump administration, John Bolton's book. According to the reports, Bolton alleges that President Trump asked Xi Jinping of China for an assist in the election. That's where I began my exclusive interview with Tim Murtall, Director of Communications for the Trump for President campaign on Bloomberg Television earlier. Take a listen. Look, I think what folks need to know about John Bolton is that uh, he is now a disgruntled former employee, and in order to get this book deal that he's touting, he had to agree to include classified information that he had access to when he was working in the administration. And so, look, this is something that has already been tried a couple of times. First, we had the, the great Russia collusion hoax, which dragged the country through that for two years before that blew up and turned out to be never true. Uh, and then there was the Ukraine nonsense, which led, led to the, uh, the to the sham impeachment. So this is this is just another another attempt at the uh, same old thing, and uh, and this one will fail just like the first two did. So you're saying he didn't ask President Xi for help to win the election? I just want to be clear. I mean, it's a, it's absurd. It's an absurd allegation, and John Bolton is just trying to sell books, and that's all there is to it. All right. The, the, the economy has been in, in, in full effect here, Tim. As you know, particularly in battleground states, the reopening of the economy has divided Republicans and Democrats. If we are not headed for a V-shaped recovery come the fall. Are you concerned that that could cost President Trump re-election? Well, I think we're already seeing evidence of the great American comeback already being underway, and a lot of economists are, in fact, predicting a V-shaped recovery. We saw the greatest single month of job creation in this nation's history in May, two and a half million new jobs created. We also saw retail sales jump by almost 18 percent, which, again, is the largest one-month jump in retail sales in this nation's history. And so the economy that the president built in the first place before it was interrupted by the coronavirus, is uh, that's a place where the president can get us back to. You can contrast that with Joe Biden. Uh, he's got a record of overseeing the slowest economic recovery since the Great Depression. And he says that the first thing that he would do as president would be to raise taxes by repealing the Trump tax cuts. That's a tax increase on 90% of American taxpayers. That is an economy killer. Top that with the idea that he has embraced the Green New Deal, which puts uh, piles of regulations on these businesses who are trying to recover, and also would crush the entire energy industry and kill 10 million jobs nationally. I think if the question is the economy, President Trump wins that argument hands down.
Well, Tim, take us into Michigan, because polls there, I know you look at the polls, and Michigan in particular, a key battleground state. It was instrumental in President Trump winning in 2016, have him trailing there to Biden. What, what economic message has to resonate specifically in Michigan, Tim, uh, in order to turn those polls around? Well, we don't put any stock in public polls, first of all. They've, they've always been wrong about President Trump, as we learned in 2016. And, and we know that the president still runs strong against Joe Biden in all of the states that we track, uh, and that includes Michigan. Uh, again, Joe Biden has a very difficult problem in Michigan with union workers and with manufacturing folks and with the economy there. Joe Biden voted for NAFTA. That is something that he is not going to be get, a, get away with and get away from. This is something that killed American jobs. It moved manufacturing jobs overseas. Joe Biden voted to include China in the World Trade Organization. That is something he championed. At the time, he said that China had the economic impact the same as the Netherlands, if that shows you uh, the level of his naivete. Joe Biden has a very serious problem. He has been complicit right. in these bad trade deals and sending our American jobs overseas. President Trump has a record of establishing much better trade deals. He tore up NAFTA and got USMCA in its place. That is a much better deal. On economic arguments, no matter what the front, Joe Biden can't hold a candle to President Trump. It's trade. Trade's, trade's going to be the, the key issue in those battleground states that Republicans are going to draw on. And, and, and I want to ask you about the George, George Floyd protests and how, how have they impacted uh, the presidential campaign, uh, and, and especially in terms of outreach uh, to minority communities as well as to, suburbs, to, to the suburbs? Now, I think you saw yesterday how, how intent the president is on leading this country in signing the executive order about police reforms, talking about safe communities and safe policings. Look, this is something that the president managed to accomplish in just four years, while Joe Biden has had over 40 years in Washington. And if Joe Biden now talks like these are things that he wanted to do all along, then why didn't he do anything about it in his 40 years in Washington, including eight years as vice president? There is no question that uh, the the, the Video and what we saw and what the president saw of what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis was shocking and horrifying. And there's no question that people support the peaceful protests that grew out of that. They're protected by the First Amendment, after all. But the violence and the one... looting and the burning, that, that is not something that Americans can stand for. And President Trump stands for law enforcement, and he stands with, with, with police officers. We know that the vast, vast majority of law enforcement officers are good, solid people protecting their communities, and President Trump's stands with them. Tim, I want to ask you a final question just about this sense of normalcy that I know you say you don't look at polls, but look, I mean, if you look at the polls, a lot of independent voters are, are wondering when is this sense of normalcy in the country going to return? It's been a very volatile summer uh, for a host of different reasons. So to, to, the, to the swing voter, to the 70,000 voters who previously voted for Obama, then voted for, for now President Trump, what do you say to them who are looking at this, scratching their heads, and whether it's the, the economy and, uh, or, or the, the unrest in the country pertaining to George Floyd, what do you say to them who, who, are, who are undecided, and, and they're going to decide this election? Well, I, I would say that Americans know that the economy had reached unprecedented heights under President Trump's leadership before it was artificially interrupted by the global pandemic. And let's remember that it was a pandemic and is a pandemic that was affecting the entire world. And so when the economy was interrupted, and, and now as we begin to come out of that, this is the great American comeback that is underway. And people should remember whose policies it was under uh, that built the economy up to that position in the first place. And we do. We have to get back to normalcy. We have to 
get back to the United States being open for business again. And I think the president's rally in Tulsa this weekend will be a great, big, visible symbol of that. It is time for America to get back to work, and Americans want to get back to work. And that's, and that's what the president is doing, leading the great American comeback. All right, Tim, I know you're headed to Tulsa. You're going to wear a mask at the rally? Got to ask you. I mean, we will have them, and uh, we'll see what it's like. I mean, we feel safe. Everyone's going to get temperature checks. Masks will be provided, and uh, I think uh, we, we feel pretty safe. And, and Oklahoma is one of the most open states in the country. They're not requiring mask wearing in public in, in Oklahoma any longer because they're, they're far along in the reopening process. So I would tell anybody who's thinking about coming to the rally that uh, if you come to the president's rally, you're going to be perfectly safe. All right, there you have it. They're going to be wearing masks. They're going to be wearing masks in Tulsa. That was Tim Murtall. He is the communications director for President Trump's re-election campaign. Breaking it down, they are going to be hitting back on that book. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we're going to get Biden World's response from Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist. And then we're going to check in, check in with Doug High. Uh, on uh, his recent CNN op-ed and reopening uh, phase two for the economy. And then, of course, we'll go to China because a lot of developments on the China front coming up with Jeffrey Wright of the Eurasia Group. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on iHeartRadio, Radio.com, and Spotify. More next. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 991. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up, we're going to check in with the Eurasia Group's Jeffrey Wright on the growing tension between the United States and China. The president has signed a bill rebuking China over Muslims amid Bolton Book claims. It's getting interesting, folks. And coming up tomorrow on the program, we will bring you my exclusive interviews with Senator Chris Coons and Marsha Blackburn. You don't want to miss that. Uh, okay, right now we're going to talk. I was literally just thinking of our next guest, Roger Fisk. He's a Democratic strategist. He's a longtime President Obama aide, and he's the principal of New Day Strategy. And literally, when I was on a run yesterday, I thought, where's Roger been? When are we going to get to talk to Roger? And then it's like Christine Barada, who's back from vacay, well, we're still working remotely, but back from vacay, it's like she read my mind. Snap my fingers. There's Roger. Roger, what have you been up to? I've been missing you, man. Oh, said no one ever. I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, that's, that's, that's kind of you. That's kind of you, and I'm always thrilled to be on, and you know, I love <laughs> Bloomberg News, so it's, it's great to be here. All right, so Oba uh, Biden was back in Delco, actually, my neck of the woods. Uh, he, he ventured out from the campaign headquarters of Philly and was in Del Delco, uh, the suburbs, um, and he's reemerging. What are we hearing from Joe Biden today? Well, I think it's important that he gets out there, first and foremost, right? I mean, his frustration is obviously he's up against someone who has the full machinery of the executive branch and the federal government on their side, and to try to make a dent in that and to try to make some news it's encouraging that it's his first kind of baby steps out there onto the road and and seeing if he can get around and actually start to generate some news um what i think you'll see is a slow ramping up of this 
Um, but I think it's healthy, and I think it's an indication that we might be starting to see little glimmers of something we could call normalcy. Okay, so what I think is fascinating that we heard in the interview with Tim Murtall at the top of the show, uh, he's the comms director for the Trump campaign, is essentially they're saying that on the issue of race relations, on the issue of police reform, Trump's going to get up on a debate stage and look at Biden and say, well, if you wanted to do this, why didn't you do any of these police reforms during the eight years of the Obama administration or during your 40-year public service career? What is Joe Biden going to say back to that during that debate moment? I think, first off, he has to divest people of the idea that it's a binary choice, right? The Obama administration did things like the National Police Data Initiative, which was actually something that the, the, this executive order kind of referenced. There was this Fair Sentencing Act. There's a whole number of things. It wasn't as sweeping when you look at it in a, in a generational legislative context as the Crime Bill of 94, um, which is much more identified with uh, the former vice president. But I think what he needs to do, the former vice president needs to go out and say, it's not a question of, you know, impacted constituencies and community leaders versus police unions, because you need both. Any system of, of social order, uh, you need some level of order to impose some kind of justice, and any social order that doesn't produce some kind of justice isn't going to be in business too long. So you actually need both sides of that. So I think he needs to go out and say, of course my record is that's how we get to real comprehensive solutions. And I think he can actually, I think he can actually win this um, if he does like the, the the difficult kind of legislative groundwork and goes out and also he needs to spend a lot of time with the impacted communities and make sure people can put the 94 crime bill in a context um, because it was needed at the time. So, uh, you know, I want to go back to something that you said, Roger Fisk, Democratic strategist, longtime aide to President Obama and now the principal of New Day Strategy. I want to get back to the point of what you said, because, you know, when I was prepping for the show today, you know, I check all the sites, all the all the Hill Rag sites, and I was on Politico.com, and there's only one mention of Biden's name, uh, or two mentions on Biden's name on the lead page. And it gets back to what you were alleging or, or speaking about earlier, which is his, his problem breaking through. His fundraising numbers are strong. His fundraising numbers have surged. But I'm not hearing Joe Biden shaking up this race or shaking up the narrative. I mean, is that a risky bet that this is just going to be a, a vote for or an up and down vote on, on Trump? Uh, because... I don't know. I mean, it just seems a little risky. Oh, it, it is. And I don't think they're going to be going about it that way. And I've said this all along, and you and I have touched on it a couple times, that yeah, but... any person running for anything needs to start with a blank piece of paper. They need to lay out exactly what they want to do for their constituents and how they see the next five or ten years going in terms of transportation, infrastructure, health care, trade, etc. And you and, and you can't factor your opponent's perceived strengths or weaknesses into that one-page kind of justification for why you want to go out there and run. So anyone who goes out there thinking that their opponent is going to lose it for them and that that's how they're going to win is in the wrong business. Um, and I still think he has time to do that, and I think he has time to go out and, and lay out that agenda. But you and I have also touched on, and this is interesting about both individuals, Biden's going up you know, while he's in his basement. And the, the president goes, his numbers go up when he's not in the news. So if the president could actually exercise a little self-restraint 
maybe go back down to that bunker for a couple more inspections every <laughs> once in a while, then maybe 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 his numbers would go up. But as we know, um, self-restraint and self-discipline is not going to be at the top of anyone's list of descriptions of the current occupant of the White House. You know, Carl W. Smith has an op-ed on uh, Bloomberg Opinion, and he is the vice president for federal policy at the Tax Foundation. And he says, pre- he writes, President Barack Obama's success working hand-in-hand with Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke in stemming the damage of the global financial crisis back in 2008 has led many commentators to overestimate his record in handling the Great Recession that followed. And the point of Carl's column is that, yes, there was uh, Bernanke and Obama were able to work to stop the bleeding, so to speak, during uh, the 08 crash, but they didn't do enough to promote longer-term economic growth in the recovery. That's something that I heard from Murtaugh as well. How does Biden combat that in the minute that we have left, Roger Fisk, uh, to say that he's going to be able to spike the growth? Well, both the former vice president as well as the former president approached it as a policy challenge, as a, as a, as a problem that could be somewhat or partially solved by policy and working with the Fed, as you just mentioned, and everything else. The current occupant of the White House sees everything from the virus on through the economy and everything else as just a messaging war, right? He has three tools in his bag, which are to insult to lie or to brag, and you've seen that he's already extinguished them in his approach to the virus, and the vice former yeah. vice president would look at it as a policy challenge. Hey, Roger, you know that music? I was just thinking in my head, Roger should get out his guitar the next time he's on and play his own outro. <laughs> there you go. Because Roger and I have FaceTime, and he's giving me a tour of his guitars. Roger Fist, we'll check in with you soon, buddy. Thanks for coming on. Coming up next, Doug, hi, I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. It is a rainy day here in Washington. You know, we were talking with Marufel. He's uh, He runs the boards for us uh, up in New York. And I said, do you like the rain? He said, nah, you know, some days I like the rain. Some days I don't like the rain. I like the rain, folks. You know, on a day like this, just drive carefully wherever you're going. Slow down. Take a breath. We all don't have to be in a rush. You know, we're all in a rush. I feel like I've slowed down during this pandemic. You know, I feel like I've really been able to catch my breath. 
Doug Highs on the line. He is Senior Vice President of Media at Kraft Media and Digital. He's the former Deputy Chief of Staff, former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. I hate this whole thing, this whole situation, Doug. I don't like it. But I try to look for, I try to look for the good. What, what good have you found in, in, the, in the last three months, Doug? Well, let me start with the bad. It's supposed to rain for another six days straight, Kevin. And right, I might build like an a arc. Day too, <laughs> but a week of it, I can't have. Build an um, arc. <laughs> no, look, I, the good. You know, it, it, it's hard to find it. And, and it's one of the things that, that I, um, I try and do myself. And, it, you know, you do that through reaching out to friends, whether it's the folks you talk to every day or the folks you don't talk to every day that you send yeah. a note to for some kind of, you know, human connection and reassurance. But also... You know, I look for, and you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, you know, who's doing, it's real easy to get depressed these days and, and to point what's point out what's going wrong. And so I try and find, you know, wh- where are things going right? And it's one of, the, one of the reasons I'm so enthusiastic about the job that Larry Hogan has done in Maryland, um, not just um, in doing a good job of containing the virus, but as a communications guy, watching, impressed by the job that he and his team, Mike Ricci, who's his um, communications director, Kata Hall in the press shop, Lieutenant Governor Boyd Rutherford, who I used to work with at the RNC, you know, they, it's, it's almost novel in 2020 to give people facts, treat them with respect and like adults, and expect, and expect that they will react to that positively, which is what we've seen here. And it, what we haven't seen is what we see so often, not just from the administration, but on Capitol Hill in both parties, which is the the name calling, the trying to own somebody else on a tweet, and all those things that it's aren't exhausting. really productive to helping voters make good good decisions. You know, it's not even exhausting because it doesn't even tire me out. It's just it's it's childish. You know, hey hey Mike, Doug just gave you a shout out. Let's get the Gov on the show. Come on, Mike. Come on, Mike. Let's get Gov Hogan on the show. Doug, pull some strings for me, all right, buddy. I will put in a good word. You know, you you, you uh, mentioned just the level of of unhappiness. The Associated Press had a poll out that came out today that said uh, four in 10 predict that their kids will be better off than them. That's the lowest since the tracking started in 1994. Only four in 10 Americans predict that their children will be better off than them, according to the Associated Press. That's the lowest since the tracking started in 1994. And 50% of Americans have reported feeling lonely or isolated. I mean, the headline of this Associated Press article really just did a number on me. It's Americans are the unhappiest that they've been in 50 years. Wow. Only 14% of American adults say they're very happy, down from 31% who said the same in 2018. I want to know who the 14% are. You know, <laughs> I want to, I want to, let's have a socially distant party with the 14%, you know, Doug. I've been surprised whether it was in The Onion or in real life that there wasn't a story <laughs> that said high school graduate happy to skip the graduation and then the quote, I never liked any of these losers, right? <laughs> um, but, but look, I, I think. We, we all feel that way to some extent because we can't go out and do the things that we like to do, whether that's going to a baseball game or a restaurant or church um, no. or going to work like we normally would. And so if we can't figure out how and why we're starting to see some of this, how and why we're going to reopen and get life hopefully back to normal, then, then we never get there. But it's not just, you know, we, we now know that it looks like phase two in Washington, D.C. will be open where on Monday where we can eat inside restaurants at a limited capacity. I was That's at La great. Dip last night, and let me tell you something. It was I couldn't walk across the place without a mask on, and you're like, all right, I'm going to wear a mask. Like, I, I get it, but, I, I mean, it's, it's – I, 
and that's not you know I respect that they did that and I, I appreciate the safety and, and whatnot but it is I mean you gotta eat without a mask on right but but those are also just the baby steps you know what yeah. do we what do we do and what are the answers for reopening child care centers so those folks who need to need to put their kids in care cannot just do what they need to do for their kids but also then go to work because if their kids aren't in child care they're not going back to work if we don't have child care we don't have a recovery what are we going to do about schools reopening i saw a stat today that said that 94 percent of school districts are not prepared to say that they're ready to reopen yet and that again you know becomes a problem and it's great that we can go outside to a restaurant now and, and hopefully go inside but if we have not come up with larger systemic well, that's what I this. let me let me I go there. I think those numbers are only fall because you know for for uh, what I I almost feel that this is a missed opportunity for both the Biden campaign and the Trump campaign. They could be having you know enough of the infrastructure week, which is a pipe dream before an election day. <laughs> but why not have you know education week? Here's the national conversation on how to reopen the schools. Why not have here's the you know here's here's the small business week where we're going to try to you know have a, a you know different policy ideas over over what restaurants. And, and small businesses to do to, to help transition them online or whatnot. I think that the both campaigns are missing massive opportunities, and it's it, it, it's the communication strategies are just out of touch with the with the problems that people are actually having to face in real life, day to day, right now, not six months from now. Enough of the polls of where the polls are going to be. What are you going to do right now? Do you, am I wrong, or, or 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 what do you think? I mean, you're the you're the guru. Well, you know, both campaigns are, are looking at this and, and trying to talk about it. But I think they're also mindful of the fact that if you put out a really smart small business proposal right now, and I, I was press secretary to SBA way, way back in the day. Um, I remember. In, in a, um, you can do that. But when, when the news is everything that's happening in the streets right now, everything that's happening with um, police reform, why police reform is, is at a head, uh, really come to a head over the past couple weeks, and everything that we've seen in the past three weeks, where we're now at 117 Americans who've died, it's tough for that smart conversation on small business to break through, or on child care, or on education. Those things are really, really hard. Look, look at like a, let's say we're talking to a very smart business audience like Bloomberg, where things Thank about you. My audience appreciates that. Our audience yeah. is very smart. Thank you. Thank you. So something that fundamentally they pay more attention to than the general public, like how we've so fast changed how people pay for things, um, because if you're not spending cash right now and electronic uh, payments have, have changed in the past three months more than they really have in the past two or three years. You're not even able to have those kind of more broad conversations because we're so focused on everything that we've seen in the past 10, 12 days uh, when it comes to George Floyd. And then obviously the last three plus months now with um, COVID-19. You know, I think and thus, I th why people are unhappy. I, I think that both Biden and Trump have have uh, in their in their careers have exhibited that they can make a, they can ignite life into a policy discussion with, with Trump. Whether you agree or disagree, it was build the wall. He ignited the immigration debate with Biden. There have been a series over the past couple of years where he's where he's ignited um uh, some debate over policy. I remember on Meet the Press when he went on Meet the Press uh, with regards to gay marriage. So there's a way to do it. And so I, I think if every family in America is worried about whether or not their school's going to reopen, but th their comms team should get out there and say, how do we how do we 
spice this up? How do we how do we get this and inject this into uh, instead of just the Twitter back and forth? I don't know, Tug. Maybe I'm being a little too holier than thou, but I, I just feel like they're missing they're missing the moment with these Zoom fundraisers and and, and whatnot. Well, I, look, I think they should be talking about this a lot more than they yeah. are um, and looking for smart ways to do it. You're never going to get rid of fundraisers, and, and now Zoom <laughs> is the way that we do everything. Um, but they look, voters react to politicians who talk about issues that they care about. Um, and, and so certainly they're going to be talk, talking about police reform right now. However, yeah. they do that. They're going to be talking about solutions to COVID. But if you're talking right. about reopening, which everybody wants to do, you need to talk about how you're going to do it and do that smartly. And right. I think well, that's where we'll see the campaign take two very different approaches. All right. Make sure you go to CNN.com and check out Doug High's uh, uh, opinion uh, on Governor Larry Hogan. It is a fascinating, fascinating read. Let's get the gov on the show. That's Doug High. Doug is the senior vice president of media at Craft Media and Digital. He is the former deputy chief of staff and former House Majority Leader Eric cancer coming up we talk geopolitics and speaking of those zoom fundraisers how much money do you think elizabeth warren's zoom fundraiser netted joe biden i'll tell you next you're listening to bloomberg 99.1 this is bloomberg sound on with kevin cirilli on bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 fm hd2 how much money do you think that Zoom fundraiser with former Vice President Joe Biden and Senator Elizabeth Warren netted the Biden campaign? How much money? Let's let's uh, ask. Let's ask Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, Eurasia Group analyst. I know you're on China and we're going to talk about China. But let me ask, how much bucks do you think Warren got Biden on a Zoom fundraiser, Jeffrey Wright? I would guess, uh, what, six or eight million? Wow, you're actually you're absolutely right. Did you cheat? Right? Did you Google it? No, I didn't. I, I promise. Wait, was, what do I win? It was well, you you got to be on Bloomberg Sound on with Kevin Cerulli. I'm the chief Washington oh, correspondent for already. television and radio. Uh, six million dollars. Six million dollars is how much Warren got by on a Zoom fundraiser. I mean, I don't know the appeal of these Zooms. I, I mean, I maybe I'm old fashioned and old soul. I just I don't. It doesn't register with me. All right. What's going on with China? The big story on Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg terminal uh, is Trump signs bill rebuking China over Muslims amid Bolton book claims. President Donald Trump signed a measure punishing Chinese officials for imprisoning more than one million Muslims on the same day that a new book alleged Trump encouraged Beijing to build internment camps to house them. The legislation signed by Trump on Wednesday after winning broad bipartisan support in Congress requires Trump to sanction any officials found responsible for oppression of the Uyghurs and members of other Muslim minority groups and revoke their visas. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think there's less there than meets the eye, honestly. It, the, this is a similar measure to the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which Congress passed last year. Uh, basically, it's the same mechanism. The, the president has to create a list, and then whoever's on that list will be sanctioned. But the issue is that they have to create those lists. So uh, the Trump White House has been relatively unenthusiastic about sanctioning people in general, and I think particularly with respect to China. Now, maybe that changes as the, as the relationship sours, but uh, there's a lot sort of uh, a lot left to be done here. 
Okay, so you, so it, it, when you when you take a broader step back, and this is why we're so grateful to have Jeffrey Wright on of the Eurasia Group, because he focuses on China specifically. When you take a broader step back at the U.S.-China relations, have they significantly changed in today than they have prior to the pandemic? Yeah, that things have, have deteriorated uh, across a, a number of different issues between the U.S. and China. But there's a lot of difference, I think, between the rhetoric, which has gotten a lot worse, and the actual um, nuts and bolts of the relationship, which, at least on trade, is still functioning relatively well, even though U.S. and China are busy blaming each other in public for the So let me interrupt then, because what has changed then? Because if trade is still going along as followed and as has been... Uh, as had been negotiated, what specific policy items have changed? If you're saying, and others agree with you, that the legislation, the bipartisan legislation didn't go far enough. Well, uh, there has been, the White House announced some steps on Hong Kong on the 29th of May, although we still haven't seen the executive order that would codify those things. Uh, So there's a little bit of question about that. Uh, The administration has also taken pre-aggressive new steps on Huawei, although that rule is still in a comment period and, and won't be finalized until September. So, you know, there are a lot of issue areas here where there are, there are things sort of on the back burner that, that could be very aggressive steps. It's just that we don't really have a full picture of the, the, the implementation of those steps quite yet. So there's still a lot of room for interpretation in terms of how serious the Trump folks really are about China. So beyond that, when you look at how China, there's been so, uh, so many reports, when you look at China and how they've been able to rally behind the Chinese flag from a nationalistic standpoint, it appears that Xi Jinping has really been playing up sort of this sense of nationalism in China as questions not just coming from the United States, but also from Europe, uh, as well as other countries around the world, Australia, have been really pressing them for more transparency in their response to COVID-19. What can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly uh, it's always a part of the Chinese policy response to almost any provocation. Um, they also have, I think, been invested a lot in the the theme that they, even though they had coronavirus first and it it started there, they they also recovered the the most quickly, um, and that their economy is sort of coming back as the rest of the world is still slowed down. I mean, there there are some complications to that narrative. We've seen uh, outbreaks in Beijing this week, for example. So. But that's not a that's not as clean a story as they're trying to sell. But that's going to be the Chinese line. It's like we we are um, we know how to beat coronavirus, and that's why we should have a position of increased leadership in the world. Is that a viable uh, comment for them to to make that they that they've done this because? I mean, they didn't beat it. Beijing had to lock down again. You know what I mean? I mean, how do they continue to make that case when when it's not true? <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, they're uh, they're arguing by comparison, right? So they're they're pointing to the U.S., which has ten thousand deaths. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, I think it's a relatively easy argument for them to make, at least in some quarters. Obviously, all this depends on who's the who's the listener, of course. But yeah. when the U.S. is in the situation it is, I think it's very difficult for uh, Pompeo and Trump and other officials to really play the sort of competition game with China on coronavirus because the situation in the U.S. is still, you know, so, uh, you know, better than it was a few months ago, but but not good by any stretch. Okay, so beyond that, 
I I don't want to ask you about the 2020 race through the lens of who's up, who's down. I want to ask you about the lens of the 2020 race through policy. Biden campaign, China policy versus Trump campaign, China policy. What's the difference? I think the biggest difference is multilateralism. Um, This was the theme of, of the Obama administration's approach to China, if you think about the issues that they were able to work with the Chinese on, particularly at the U.N., so the, the Iran sanctions, North Korea, um, the Paris climate negotiations, uh, all of those issues were places where the U.S. and China, even though they have significant disagreements on trade and, and other areas, geopolitics, they're able to collaborate in places where they have common interests. That part of the relationship has really been stripped away in the Trump administration, the, the the focus is almost exclusively on trade, and the, the lens is almost always conflictual. Uh, now, you can argue there are good reasons for that and, and that that's a necessary shift in U.S. policy. But I think one thing the Biden folks are really going to want to do if they win is is explore a, a sort of limited reset to the relationship that might allow the U.S. to pursue multilateral goals with China, even while it, it fights with China, uh, figuratively speaking, one hopes, on uh, on trade and other issues. What else is on your radar? We've got a minute left. What else is on your radar? Uh, it doesn't have to be about China. Uh, what, what can you tell us about China and India? Any developments? There's now they've gotten they've gotten to some type of an agreement. We've learned. Yeah, things seem to be de-escalating. It's it's a it's a fairly murky situation. Like the the news about what actually happened was was quite slow to come out. Um, but that's going to be a very interesting area for Trump. I think these are two of his. Uh, you know, the relationship with Xi is complicated, but his relationship. Um, with Modi has been much more, um, you know, much easier. And, and Modi's really been a, an ally that he's been trying to cultivate. So I think a, a difficult moment for him to sort of pick uh, pick between two favorite favorite friends there. All right, we're going to leave it there. Any update on the 76ers? Jeffrey Wright, your age group analyst. Uh, coming back soon. Looking forward to it. I hope uh, I don't Joel know how I feel is, about uh, this. Not been... I hope he, yeah, that was Pinky, right? The Pinkies was bad. Yeah, well, and when he's not playing, he tends to, uh, I think, like sit around and play video games. So I hope he's wow. Well, don't we all? When we're not working, what do we do? Jeffrey Wright, your Asian <laughs> group true. analyst. Wow, way to knock Joel Embiid on the Bloomberg Sound on radio program. Nah, he's my guy. He's my guy. I love uh, you, well, you didn't act like it, Joel. I mean, Jeffrey, you didn't. You didn't <laughs> act like it. All right, appreciate the time. Appreciate the time. That's Jeffrey Thanks, Wright. Jeff. He's the Eurasia. Of course, anytime. He's the Eurasia group analyst. And coming up tomorrow, Senator Chris Coons and Marsha Blackburn. You do not want to miss that. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief. Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Bring a raincoat. Get your umbrella out. It's raining. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.